0: What is up everyone and welcome into episode 71 of the Modern Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike. My name is Mike Johnston from Mike'sLessons.com and my co-host will be joining me shortly as Mr. Mike Dawson, Managing Editor of Modern Drummer Magazine. After Mike and I get all caught up, we'll dive into some education. We'll talk about the difference between feeling it and analyzing it. Our featured artist this time is Mr. Chris Dave. In our gear review section, Mike will be checking out some new signature ride cymbals from Istanbul Mehmet. We'll get to a bunch of your listener questions and as always, we'll get to our picks of the week. So let's get started. Like that. Like that. <laughs> we got to get a t shirt.
1: That's not a Just bad
0: idea. We you know what? We one, should do two, some three, four, Like that. That would be the perfect, perfect t shirt. Uh, it's actually shocking. That's that's when I know people listen to this podcast, is when uh, I get the like that comments. Like, oh my God. <laughs> why, why do you guys only remember the dumbest part of our entire episode? But. The
1: darkness of your history. Oh goodness gracious!
0: I wish I had video of it because I need to prove that he did it. But I also need to—I need people to see what I look like in a double XL uh, Hawaiian shirt playing <laughs> jazz standards with a drunk keyboard player and a drunk saxophone player.
1: All right. So, what size jeans did you wear in 1994? Ooh, uh, I would say it was still a 32
0: waist, but the leg really had some ample room.
1: Uh, <laughs> you weren't on the 36s.
0: No, I was I was I, the waist was the proper size but uh we it was were the oversized. Yeah, yeah. I I didn't go full Jenko jeans where it was like, you know, you could hide a couple uh small people under <laughs> your legs. Uh, I didn't do that, but I went pretty back. I, I actually just didn't do a lot of jeans back in the 90s. I when we were touring it was all Dickies and Ben Davis with the so, bo- with
1: the cuffs cut off. Yeah, pretty much yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: And then a baseball hat. As low as possible while I could still somehow function and walk forward, but just slam <laughs> down as low as possible. Uh, I had my lip pierced. I had both ears gauged out. Nice. Yeah, it was. Went I on. went for it. Yeah. I, I really did, man. Uh, yeah, got my straight edge jacket, strife, snap case, just supporting the, the East Coast hardcore bands. It's good times, man. It's good times.
1: Yeah, good old I, 1994.
0: Yeah, I don't think we would have hung out.
1: <laughs> no, I mean I was in the, the skate scene. Everyone, I I couldn't okay. do the baggy pants, but it was all my friends were just walking around with balloons on their legs. It was insane. Yeah,
0: I never went that far. It was more of like the the wannabe tough guy look, right? Mm. So I didn't go like goofy look. It was more like like I said, dickies, uh, plain t shirt, hat as low as possible, and <laughs> and then massive amounts of sideburns. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh yeah, the sideburns. Right? Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah so welcome
1: in episode seventy one
0: <laughs> <laughs> how are you guys doing, everybody? Welcome in so we all have that in our history and uh you know, and you know what there's a bunch of people that are right now about 27 that are referring to the time where they had a big bleach spot in the front of their head they wore women's (laughs) jeans and they're like look it was called emo we went for it the women's jeans
1: man I I was so embarrassed to my friends who were shopping for for Jordache or whatever they were shopping for it's like
0: what are you doing man come on and and you know I just didn't under well one I'm a drummer so when I sit down even if I have remotely tight jeans I can feel it in my legs when I'm trying to play like an ostinato I'm like I'm fighting this samba pretty bad um (laughs) <laughs> so, but when I would, I always, I you know, I, I grew up skating like you. Then I went straight into BMX and raced all the way until I turned professional and toured doing that. So I, I have kind of uh, thicker legs. And it, I, I'm telling you, even now, it's hard to find jeans. Like I have a 32 waist, but apparently my thighs are like from a guy that just eats a lot. And so, <laughs> so like when I put on these jeans, I'm like, how does someone walk in these? And then I see. You know, kids in the mall where it's like skin tight on their calves. And I'm like, ah, oh, <laughs> how do you – you can't play drums in that.
1: What so. is, what's that brand that makes like jeans for men, men? The um, the commercials are amazing. It's oh, like Duluth? Duluth, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's Duluth. like
0: just a guy scratching his armpits with a bear paw. Yeah. It's like Duluth Trading Company.
1: <laughs> yeah, man, Duluth is company. where it's
0: at. Oh, <laughs> well, that's – uh, so we're all caught up. <laughs> hey, good news, man. I looked at the weather today. And we were one degree colder than New York, and raining. And I was like, "Mike's having a much better weather day than I am." This How's is that great. even possible? I don't know, man. It's in the thirties there. Yeah. It, well, it was. It was the the high today for us was like forty two, and the high for you was forty three. But yeah, you didn't okay. have rain, and so I was like, "Wow, this is the day that I'm in California, wishing I was in Jersey." Hanging yeah. Out with well, Dawson, we're supposed to man. get
1: some Siberian. Cold coming through next week, so okay, whatever. I take
0: it back. Yeah, take you don't it want back. to be here. Yeah. It's going to be
1: like <laughs> like the coldest winter we've had in a few years. Awesome, can't wait. Oh
0: goodness gracious! <laughs> well, other than that, how's life, buddy?
1: Everything's good. Everything's good. Goodness. What uh, what the heck can I uh, report on? Um, I can report that practicing before a gig helps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I finally put in some real practice time, and I had one of the best, like most fluid gigs I've ever had on Sunday.
0: Were you practicing
1: for the gig or just
0: practicing in general and then went and gigged?
1: Uh, you know, I was actually, it was the, uh, the beatnik man. I feel like I'm the number one endorser of the beatnik because <laughs> I just, I just spent like an hour on it and refused to quit until I got 85% on the various nice. stickings. And, and it just, it just dialed me in. I got to the gig and everything just, it was so clean and effortless and fun. I have a
0: question for you on that. Yep. Okay. So we, we have it here. Um, and who's the guy that makes the beatnik? Do you know his name? I
1: can't remember. Sorry. Okay. I, I just wanted Wesley, to thank him because he,
0: he sent us one for, for our school or for the camps and stuff, and I, I really appreciate it. We actually use it. And it's, it's a fun game. But I did notice that the accuracy on that would go down if the batteries were dying. Yes. Okay. Yes. I just wanted to make sure that's – okay. So do you, do you have yours plugged in or do you just always change the batteries?
1: Uh, I, just, I have rechargeable batteries. I just charge them up every week or so. Okay. okay. His yeah, name I, is Rusty.
0: Rusty. So yeah. first of all, Rusty, thank you for that. Um, it, but I, at one point, I was like listening and I'm like – and I'm, I'm running my students through it and they're all getting like 30 percent. Now, all they're doing is double strokes to a click and this is like an advanced camp. And I'm like – by the fourth person, I was like, that can't be right. Let me jump on there. And I got like 28 percent. I was like, OK, that's factually incorrect. I am more accurate than that. And then, and then I realized I was like, you know what? These are like the batteries that came with it nine months ago. Oh, this, yeah. This must affect it. So, yeah. So f- so if you guys have the beatnik and you think like, okay, I'm not trying to cheat, but I think my score is a little low, change your batteries. <laughs> just a heads up. Heads up, change those batteries. Uh, well, that's good, man. I- I'm-, I'm glad. So let's get into some stuff right away because this was a topic that you wanted to talk about. Yeah. And you and I, I think, probably approach things pretty different in this aspect. Mm-hmm. Or at least I've found that most my drummer friends and I approach approach this pretty different which is just the topic of feeling something versus analyzing it yeah. um and i want to know first of all <laughs> what do you really mean by that
1: uh, i'll give you the backstory so we um one of our writers aaron edgar he does really really awesome really advanced stuff he's he's kind of like an ongoing column about really progressive drumming concepts so a couple couple issues back it might actually be the one that just it was december i believe he um he did a piece on playing like funk grooves, like normal sounding grooves, but the hi-hat is actually phrased in fives and sevens. Like, so mm-hmm. it, it just sounds like a regular groove with the hi-hat just kind of off time, sort of okay. the J Dilla, Chris David, we'll talk about later, that kind of sound. Okay. So he, he did that and he, I mean, he analyzed it to the nth degree of, of playing five note subdivisions to give you that kind of off kilter feel.
0: Okay, so you don't mean like groupings of fives as sixteenths. You mean actual quintuplets and septuplets. Yeah,
1: exactly. But so he's not playing okay. all of them. He's only playing like the first and third or something. Uh, so it has this kind of lope to it. Yes. Um, and so we put a little clip up on Instagram, and just the reaction was really interesting to where some people said, basically the overwhelming response was, you know, why why do that? Just feel it. Or you're ruining the magic. Or that's definitely not the way that – Questlove played that. Really? Wow. And I mean, obviously, of course, that's not the way that Questlove was thinking about that groove on that, because it was was an approximation of a uh, D'Angelo song. Okay. But that wasn't the point. The point was that he was saying you can create these grooves if you use fives and you can be very consistent with them.
0: Right. Not to mention there are people out there that can't feel it. So some people are so analytical they need for it to be broken down.
1: Right, exactly. So it kind of it's And I, I see both sides of it, and I see that obviously the best way for me is to try to play along to the record. If you of can't course. figure it out, if it just still confuses the hell out of you, then take it to the next step and say, all right, what what can I do to, to mathematically figure this out? Transcribe right. it or whatever. But it was just an interesting debate, and I tend to feel that when people say just feel it, that's erring on the side of laziness, of – You don't want to put in the work. You don't want to ruin whatever magic it is. Um, So that's why I wanted to talk about this topic. And also at the exact same time, uh, this is a a quote from Vinny Cayuta from the 1987 Modern Drummer um, where he was talking about the Alan Holdsworth record, Secrets. Okay. Um, No, it was – maybe not. He was just talking about his concept of drumming. Um, this is a quote that's going to be in the March issue. So they were asking him basically about how he can just kind of go nuts and, play, and just play crazy drums. And the quote is Yes, I go for it, but it's not reckless because I know exactly what I'm doing. So, so all these, I think, drop. Yeah. So, so many <laughs> drummers think, well, Vinny's just going off. He's just playing whatever comes to mind. But his brain is processing everything he does. So, he, he right. probably could transcribe everything he plays. Sure. But yet it sounds like he's just feeling it. He's just going for it. And he does. He's going for it. But he's put in the hours to know exactly yeah, what he's
0: doing. I think we all know what it's like to get in an emotional state. And maybe you're yelling at somebody or maybe you're almost making a speech even though you don't mean to. But you get in this emotional state where you're speaking at a high rate of speed. You're using words that you rarely use. And there's so much emotion in what you're talking about because you're emotional about the subject and I think, but but it's still, you're not inventing any words in the moment. Right. You're, right. You know exactly what the hell you're talking about. You know what you're saying. You know how to enunciate. You know how to pronounce everything. And I think when you watch Vinny feel it, it's like, of course, it's not written out ahead of time. I think that's the, the difference is people think that if you're not feeling it, then you wrote it out and figured it out ahead of time. And yeah. I don't see it yeah. that way. I see it as I'm speaking the language Using the vocabulary that I did develop through very, very systematic and analytical practice. Right. Um, But the other thing, you know, going back to the article, um, did you say it was Edgar that wrote it? Yeah, Aaron. Aaron Edgar. So going back to that, I think that there's a lot of people that don't understand that rhythms are built out of an overriding grid of a subdivision. And then there's missing notes. I mean, that's how we get syncopation. Right. Is syn- syncopation is any rhythm that is not evenly spaced. So I think there's a lot of people that honestly don't know that quintuplets and septuplets are a subdivision that you could choose from. So, yeah. and Mark Giuliana does a great job in his book of displaying the difference between the first and last of a group of 16th notes, one E and a two E and a three E and, and the first and last of eighth note triplets, one and a two and yeah. a three. But if I stopped counting for you, you probably wouldn't be able to really tell the – you wouldn't be able to tell which one I'm in for most people. Right. So if I take one E and a, two E and a, three E and a, and then I play the first, third, and fourth of a grouping of quintuplets, it'd be a weird fe- – it'd be like that's slightly wrong. It's like, no, it's mathematically flawless. Yeah. You're just not used to hearing that. so. I think, like you said, when it comes down to laziness, I'm not saying that everybody's lazy. I think sometimes they're just – they're not even misinformed as much as they're uninformed. They just don't even know that those subdivisions exist. Yeah. And my teacher never taught them to me, all of my teachers, even Pete Magadini. We never did quintuplets and septuplets. Yeah. Um, It was just quarter notes, eighth notes, eighth note triplets, sixteenth notes. We magically jumped to sextuplets, and somehow we end up at 32nd notes.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's – interesting that people just say okay he's he's he wrote a beat and with fives and sevens therefore he's too analytical like that to me is like well what's what if it was 16th notes what if what do you <laughs> what do yeah, you mean
0: exactly well what, what do you he, think anakinilis is doing and changing the whole landscape yeah with? that
1: was kind of my the point is i i don't think it's either or i think you can study fives to the point where they're as comfortable as eighth notes and you can play with just as much passion as a guy who doesn't know anything that he's doing. He's just playing purely from whatever he's hearing. Well, what do you think – I mean I, now now I'm like mad. I know, right?
0: <laughs> now I'm saying things like, well, what do you th- – I'm like yelling at you like you did this to me. But I mean isn't that what happens when some, you take your average rock, pop, funk drummer and take him to a Zakir Hussain concert? Yeah. And it's like, okay, well, they're not wrong. I'm just lost. And it's like, well, you're yeah. lost because you're not familiar with their polyrhythms. You're not familiar with their time signatures. You're not familiar with uh, polymeters. And so they're just using a language that's above your head. Just like if you and I went to an astrophysics conference right now, we'd be a little lost. But they're not wrong. They're just yeah. s- speaking above us, you know. Or in, or really, I mean, if you only grew up with tuplets, and the first thing you learned was eighth-note triplets, then quintuplets, then septuplets and that's all you had to work with like why would that it wouldn't be weird to you it'd be the only thing you knew
1: yeah exactly and and what would that say about the entire music theory world cuz all of music theory is analyzing compositions that were written before the rules were were established or or they right. you know they Beethoven was just writing from whatever he was hearing and then we've we've spent 200 years analyzing every note he's ever written does right. that mean that that we're, we're taking the feeling out of Beethoven I think it actually makes you feel it more because you understand it more I think right. that's why. That's what I, said, I think about Straight Ahead Jazz you have to understand the theory and the harmony and the concepts before you can truly appreciate the art because then it just the randomness disappears
0: would you go and obviously I this is uh, I already know the answer but would you go see a speech in a foreign language if you had heard that he was an impassioned speaker mm I mean, no. and then you're you're telling me that <laughs> understanding the language makes you not feel the speech as much, <laughs> right? And so, I, I was even thinking about that when I was in Mexico City. I was I, I had to make the decision. Okay, I've got like three or four things on my mind. I mean, the 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 election had just happened, and I was seeing like racial violence, and I was seeing uh, you know violence, just hate crimes and stuff. So when I got to Mexico City, I, I had a lot of stuff on my mind. And that's kind of what going to one of my clinics is like is you're going to get what's on my mind at the time. Well, I had to make the decision. Do I want to talk about these things that I'm really passionate about to a, to an audience that most of them probably can't understand my language? And then do I trust the translator to get it across? Mm-hmm. And I mean, gosh, I would have never even double thought any of it if I knew I was speaking to a primarily English audience I know, or English speaking audience. I knew yeah. they would get it. So, yeah, I, I agree. I think – Knowing what's going on. Pete Magadini explained it best. Not knowing that stuff is driving on a highway with no lights and you grab the steering wheel with – you're so scared out of your mind because you can't see anything around you. And then knowing all of that stuff is when the sun comes up and you drive much more relaxed and you can feel the road and everything's just there. So I think it it, it comes down to feeling it. Now, there are times where I do want to see can I feel it with my current knowledge. Right. Right? So <clears> – <throat> Yeah. i don 't need to break down the funky drummer by James Brown because it 's all built out of
1: vocabulary that I already own,
0: yeah um, and I want to see if I can do that, but uh, when you it,
1: were ten years old and you oh. wanted to play that song and you couldn 't figure it out, a transcription would really help you. Does that Absolutely. mean you 'll not ever be able to play it with feeling no i don 't no, think no. so
0: <laughs> right no and you know and, and I think that there's there 's <laughs> definitely a wonderment to people that do things too analytical, like you and I have seen some of the greatest drummers in the world that are almost robotic in how flawless the execution is, and that that they live in one area. And then there's another group where you're like, man, you've never had lessons, you don't know how to read, you you've never even seen YouTube, and yet you just play with nothing but feel and touch. But even that, I still feel like even if you don't know what you're doing, you kind of do. There's no way you didn't listen to music growing up, like. Yeah, yeah right. So I think it just <clears throat> is a almost a definition in terms type of thing. But I, I definitely agree that I try to feel something, and if I can't, then I break it down. Um, yeah. And I and I and then I think I actually feel it better because I broke it down.
1: I would think so because you're not guessing if whether you're right or not. Like for that <laughs> yeah. that particular Questlove groove, if if I if I play along to the record for a couple months, like and I got it, and I go to a gig and try to do that. I'm still going to be kind of guessing. I think, yeah.
0: Or if I spend you know, the
1: time really kind of transcribing it and trying different placements, if nothing else, I'd be in control of exactly what I'm playing, rather than trying to create some false lope that is in it's inconsistent. Yeah, the first time I heard Voodoo, that uh, the, the I, I'm assuming
0: that's the record yeah, that it came exactly, from. Okay, yeah. so the first time I heard Voodoo, obviously I I wasn't. It was new. We, no one was ready to handle that and think it was genius except for the people that grew up in Philly and understood yeah. that world. Here on the West Coast, it was like, well, they're wrong. I, I just thought <laughs> they were wrong. I was like, this bass player and this drummer can't play. So the first time I started digging it and trying to do it, I felt the biggest sense of imposter syndrome you could ever have because I had no idea why I was doing it. I yeah. didn't know if it was right or wrong. I just was, I was literally playing sloppy on yeah. purpose. And it wasn't until I started to dissect it and think, okay, let me listen. Someone must be in time. You can't create this feel until (laughs) someone's in time for you to be off of time. So then I'm listening. I'm like, is the hi-hat locked with the vocals? Okay, now let me listen to the bass. Um, Actually, I was just talking to Mark. Um, Mark was showing myself, Ash, and the campers in Ireland a track very similar to this. We were talking about this exact subject. And he has to play a song with uh, Modest Yahoo that – the bass is so behind, but if Mark pulls back to lock with the bass player, the song is ruined.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: But it's like shockingly behind it. So (laughs) it's called Broken Car. I I texted him right away like two days ago because I couldn't remember the name of it and I said, what's that track? So the track's called Broken Car by Modis Yahoo. And Mark's not on – I don't think Mark's on the record. I think Mark is just – he's actually had to do the gig live with Modis Yahoo at a few festivals. Um, and the bass player is Stu Brooks. Um, so, right. anyways, that that feel—I mean, that that's a thing. And I—that was one of those things where it's like I can't figure this out. This isn't in any of my books. Yeah. And uh, and so I think analyzing it really helps the feel because. You f- your feel improves with confidence nothing improves feel like confidence yeah right nothing I mean nothing in the world because <laughs> there's people that can't even play but they just have so much confidence that I buy in I'm mm-hmm. like dude I'm in you're amazing yeah and you just have the Steve Jordan face like you know you're playing quarter notes but you love it and it feels great to me so I think um, if analyzing things and breaking them down unlocks that confidence door for you then I think it's extremely important
1: you know yeah I mean, I think it's whichever you need to do to get to that point.
0: I mean, isn't that really what it comes down to? Is the output does it sound good or not? I don't care how you got here. I don't, you know, I have no idea how ninety percent of my favorite records. I don't know how they were recorded uh, because I wasn't there. We didn't have YouTube at the time. Yeah, I don't know what technique the drummer used. They might have traditional matched German French. It's like I don't care. It sounds good. Yeah, you know. So I'm with you on that. Well, talking about feel and feeling it and. And analyzing it and knowing exactly what you're doing Let's
1: talk about our uh, cover artist This is for the January issue? Correct, it just came out, what is today? It just came out uh, this week, so like a couple days ago Three days ago The the big
0: dog, Mr. Chris Dave on the cover Now is this his first
1: cover? This is his second cover Okay, Um, Sounds about right And we we decided to go this time because um, I don't know if it's out yet, but he has a solo record on Blue Note That's supposed to be out or coming out very soon
0: Wow, fantastic Um,
1: yeah, so he, it's his second cover. The first time it was when he did the the last Maxwell record, like oh. Maxwell's big return, mm-hmm. um,
0: which is still. That's I mean now that we're going to talk about it eventually. That's <coughs> something I want to talk about because that that record was game changing for me. So, oh yeah, um, yeah. I mean, let me ask you this: When did Chris Dave, not Modern Drummers radar, but when did Chris Dave come on
1: your personal radar? It was when he was with Kenny Garrett. Okay. Um, I saw that band. I saw that band twice. I saw them. I was expecting it to be Tane because he was on uh-huh. all the records. But the touring band Kenny always brought some some young guys out with him. Uh, the first time, I think it was the first time. First time, I think it was Marcus Baylor. Who oh wow! Also killed it. Yeah. I never heard him before. It was before he did the Yellow Jackets. The Yellow and, Jackets, sure. And then I saw him with Chris Dave, and it was just, I wasn't prepared for it because his <laughs> his sound is. The opposite of Tane. Tane is kind of an earthy, big, robust sound. And at the time, Chris's sound was really tight. I mean, his snare was like as tight as it could possibly go. The toms were so tight. The cymbal sounds were real dry. Um, And it was kind of overwhelmingly tense, like in in an intensity way. Okay. Like just the time was so tight. was When I first kind of became with him and Hutch, because I saw Hutch with – with joshua Redman, mm, and i was oh, expecting wow. brian blade again the sure. opposite brian blade is a big opposite, wide yeah. beat and hutch has a real tight new york style which that was the first time i was aware of that kind of new york phrasing which is really tight really edgy always on the on the front side of the beat and it just kind of makes you feel unsettled but in a good way like you can't just sit back and you know have a glass of wine while these guys are playing i mean it's gonna, <laughs> yeah, you got to
0: sit forward a little. <laughs> you're
1: gonna be leaning yep. forward the whole time so it was intense i think he might have been sitting on a bar stool at the time he was sitting so high (laughs) it was like freakishly high (laughs) Uh, that's awesome (laughs) yeah so that was the first and then it was just other Uh other jazz records i wasn't aware of any of his r&b or hip-hop playing at all it was all the straight ahead jazz really wow see i was the opposite
0: so i can't remember the year i mean we can look it up but um mint condition did a live at the 930 club album so it was Mm -hmm. album and dvd and they used a real drummer Uh, well i mean mint condition is a real band right so they have uh, mike stokely usually plays drums they're singer but they have bass player keys and guitar and drums well uh, i can't remember who did it i think it was somebody that's maybe one of the cousins of was it eric Tribbett? it was like Ty Tribbett's cousin. Anyways, I thought it was incredible. Blew me mm-hmm. away. Well, all my friends at the time that were deep into that scene just said, oh, that's nothing compared to when Chris Daddy Dave plays with them. Okay. And I was like, okay, first of all, <laughs> who the hell has the middle name Daddy? Because <laughs> I think I'm pretty proficient at the drums, and I think you're really proficient at the drums, but there's no way I'm calling you Michael Daddy Dawson. No, like, never you got to be bad, <laughs> and I am not Mike Papa Johnston. So it's like Papa to, to, put, to put daddy in between your first and last name, you got to be pretty dope. So I was like, wait a minute. Mm. I thought this was incredible. And they're like, no, when, when they play with their normal drummer, Chris, Daddy, Dave, it's it's even more next level. I'm like, really? So then I, that's when I, I'd never heard of him. And then I started looking him up. And I think – and someone said he couldn't do that because he's out with Maxwell right now. And I was like – and okay. I was a huge Maxwell fan mm-hmm. back in the 90s when he first broke. hmm um, but it never got funky enough for me. It was always—I mean, Maxwell became like the power ballad R&B yeah. guy,
1: super smooth, yeah,
0: super smooth, yeah. And it was like organic ballads, but it always had the the potential to get to that almost D'Angelo level. Yeah. Well, then the that album came out. Uh, what's the album? Is it uh, Black Summers? Uh, I can't remember it. Um, but anyways, what I think it might be Black Summers Night or. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it it blew me away and it was like yes this is what I've always been wanting from from Maxwell but it was all Chris Dave doing it it was quite incredible so that's that's how I kind of found out about him and then from that people said oh you know he's uh he's a jazz drummer and then and then I remember I didn't even hear him with Kenny Garrett I heard him then with Robert Glasper okay and that's when I was like whoa um yeah. But then it was this weird thing. It was he was the cat that I was hearing about that's like, yeah, he's out with Robert Glasper doing this experimental stuff. And then somebody said, "Yeah, I think he just was out with Kanye or he was out with Adele <laughs> yeah. or he did the Adele album." And I'm like, "Are you sure that's the same guy? Yeah. How could one man possess that much talent? It's yeah. not possible." And what um, I didn't
1: realize is that he's now one of Rick Rubin's uh session drummers. So, stop, I mean, that was unreal, like real, Wait a minute. So how did that happen? Which is pretty cool.
0: Yeah, and and uh I mean it was it was this weird combination of the the pop stuff, it could be Justin Bieber or whoever, and then also it was like, Oh man, he's on Michelle Nadeglicello's album yeah. and uh, yeah, and, and I mean this stuff's been going on, so uh, he was on Mint Conditions album from the Mint Factory in nineteen ninety three. Mm. I was a junior in high school then. Th- that was that long ago. And that's yeah. And then he was on their sec on the next album in '96, and then '99. And then he did. And then there was like, then he did the Michelle Ndegelocello stuff. So, anyways, I mean, if you guys haven't heard Chris Dave, I'm assuming most of you have, but there's probably a lot of you that just know the name and don't know the playing. What's amazing about Chris is he could be playing a song that you're listening to on the radio right now, and you wouldn't even know it was real drums and you would assume it wasn't but yeah. he also could be on the most experimental jazz thing you've ever heard and they would both be completely authentic and I don't know how he manages to do that stuff you know
1: uh, yeah I don't think there's a more emulated drummer now that's in that oh. <clears throat> excuse me crossover hip hop R&B jazz world because it before like in the mid 90s it was like if you play jazz it's straight ahead jazz you're coming out of Philly Joe Jones and and sure Maybe a little bit of odd time stuff, but it's it's very traditional. And then for him, when I when my perspective, when he kind of became the guy, that kind of threw it all out the window because he was bringing in like hip hop sounds. He was experimenting. He was using drum kits that were really odd and broken cymbals and all this like taping up his drums, which at that time was a no no. Like don't right. don't even think about putting tape on your drums in a jazz gig, right? So that I mean he kind of re remolded and you can hear it. I mean, there's so many people now who are working that, that are that are so heavily influenced by Chris Dave. I think he He's, might be the archetype of that new jazz.
0: Absolutely. Uh, well, I think too that his name has become an adjective like people say are you doing the chris dave thing yeah um can you give me some of that chris dave stuff the way that you know producers for years did and still do and will do forever with ringo like just give me a ringo fill. yeah um now people say that in grooves like give me a steve jordan beat give me a chris dave beat those are not the same beats right uh, or feels and and even when you say chris dave to me i don't think of just his feel i I think of like you said i think of his tonality i think of the way he tunes his drum his sound absolutely and it's always
1: changing he never plays the same kit i mean the kit that he set up for the photo shoot is absurd it's (laughs) he's got a gigantic bass drum he's got snare drum he's got three snare drums i think yeah one in a normal spot one in the floor tom spot which i think that's a chris dave thing everyone who's doing that now owes owes him some royalty for that and he's got a side snare He's got bongos that are positioned over the bass drum, but not left or right, but vertically. Like, okay, oh, he's just taking a stance. I'm going to put the you know the small bongo closest to me, and the and the bigger one behind it. Weird. Wow, just weird. His hi hats are those weird. huge 18 inch sick hats with holes all in them. He's got spiral cymbals everywhere. Right. He's playing Fibes drums. He doesn't have a drum endorsement because he doesn't. He, he always okay, changes was... it up. And he's
0: a Sabian guy, right?
1: Sabian Vader and Remo are his only official uh, ties. So I think Man. when he did the Maxwell tour, he got a Brady kit with like all snare drums. It was just bass drum and a bunch of snare drums. Um, Man, <clears throat> it's really pretty remarkable. He's got I think he might have a, some pedal stuff. When he played uh, Nam a couple years ago at the Sabian Night, yeah, with his yeah. his band Drumheads G- Drum H E D Z is the band. There's, I think he has a couple of records out that are pretty pretty amazing. He was using a delay pedal on his side snare, <clears throat> which I'd never heard anyone do. Wow. It was really cool. And so whenever he hit that snare drum, it just brought in this this element of, of digital world, delay and reverb and stuff. Man. Very creative. You know, the thing that I really like
0: about him, and I don't know this, he's actually one of the few drummers that I haven't met because uh, I don't know what happened. We were supposed to – he was on the PASIC that I was on. And something happened and he didn't yeah, play. He just wasn't there. And so either. yeah, and so I never got the chance to meet him, but he's definitely been one of my favorite drummers for a long time. One thing that I really like about him, and I think this to be true, I don't think he's that different to be different. I don't think I don't think he cares. I don't think he cares that people didn't tape their toms. Mm-hmm. I don't think he gave him much thought. I I really think it's just in his head. I mean, I've talked to Chad Brandolini, my uh my rep at Vader, and he said <clears> that when when Chris comes in it's just a different world. He lives in a different world. He wants different things. He hears sounds that we don't hear, and yeah. he doesn't care what the rules are. I mean, the the perfect example of that is he wanted Vader to send him a ton of bricks and bricks of 7A sticks without the tips glued on. right? So <laughs> nylon tips, don't put the tips on. And they're like, what? so stop it in the middle of like manufacturing? Yes, I want that. And it's like – but I think that's probably because – well, the, the, or uh, Chad told me that he just found a stick in the garbage that was going to get thrown away, and he hit a ride symbol with it and was like – that's what I want. That's um, the sound yeah. I'm looking for. A oh,
1: so, sound. Interesting.
0: Yeah, I think that Chris just lives in a different world, and that's one of those things where it's like just appreciate the brilliance of it, man. It's it's amazing. I, I would love to talk to him, and may, maybe you know, but I don't know. Does he – I mean he must know his stuff. I think he went to like a jazz college, right?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure about college, but he came from that Houston art school that also had Eric Harland and, and okay. a few other guys. Uh um, I think Kendrick Scott is from down there as well. So oh, he's, wow. he's heavily schooled in his early years. Um, right. You know, he's, he's, his contemporaries are Kareem Riggins, who's another kind of amazing producer, jazz drummer, hip hop producer and jazz drummer. So, I mean, he's, yeah, I think he was immersed in, I think in his first cover story, he talked about his early years of just playing drums all day, every day. It was just nonstop. And then him and Eric yeah. Harlan would just shed and, and, like challenge each other. Like one day they'd set up the kids left handed and just see who could play better. Like you know, just <laughs> awesome. You know, awesome. Uh, it seemed like that scene down there. Hopefully, it's still there. And Houston was really nurturing for arts, and he, you know, he kind of him and Eric kind of came out of that same time.
0: Yeah, and it says uh, <clears throat> that he also studied at Howard University in DC. Oh right, so, yeah, that's probably um, how he
1: got hooked up in the uh, in the gospel world.
0: I'll yeah. Um, so I mean, it, it's. He's definitely one of the most influential drummers on the planet for sure. Like I said, his name is becoming an adjective, so I think it's a a very cool thing. So if you guys get a chance, um, for me, when I heard Black Summer's Night by Maxwell came out in 2009, and then you, you might be confused, when you get on iTunes, I think there's two versions of it, like a deluxe version that just came out last year. It's the same album with maybe one or two tracks and some new mastering, but I really don't have a lot of albums in my collection that the drums play as important of a role to the music as that album. There are things that he does when when the mood needs to come down, he plays uh, some polyrhythmic hi hat stuff that takes you backwards in time. So he starts hitting every (laughs) fourth eighth note triplet, and the subdivision's still there, but you start feeling every fourth instead of every third. And there's, I mean, he really. He's really controlling the the emotion that's going on there. So that's definitely one to check out. Mm-hmm. And then um Comfort Woman by Michelle Nadegalicello was another one that I just it was one of those ones that like I said like we talked about earlier, I had to analyze because I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't just sit down and jam with it.
1: Yeah. You know? And he does a thing with his band Drumheads that I remember now that <clears throat> half of the band will play in one tempo and the other half will play in another tempo. Sure. Of course. <laughs> yeah. I think they oh, do yeah. giant steps where it just kind of one half of the band is playing a funk version. The other half of the band is playing a super fast swing. And they just keep going and going and going until it finally just comes back together. They're not analyzing it, but they also know exactly what they're doing. They're in yeah. complete control.
0: Uh, amazing. Well, definitely check out Chris Dave. And if you want to know where you stand on the spectrum of badassity, just throw the word "daddy" in between your first and middle name, <laughs> and if it fits, then you're pretty dope. And if, if it doesn't, don't
1: just laugh immediately. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. I would love. I want everyone in the car right now to say your first name, then the word "daddy," and then your last name. And because when I say Chris Daddy David, doesn't sound weird. No, the dude, just exactly. owns it. It's you know, him. Yeah. Um, I could probably do it with Jeff Watt. Jeff Daddy Watts works fine, <laughs> <laughs> but but old. Uh, Michael Papa <laughs> it's, uh, it's just not. We're just not there yet. All right, let's get into some gear review, some candy time. We got some signature ride symbols from Istanbul Mehmet. So this is the Sara and the Kirkor. You you pronounce them?
1: I don't even know. I think it's Sara and Kirkor. Their their name. Sara I think is a okay. desert. Kirkor is a guy's name who uh, who made symbols. He I think he was he was. Mehmet's uh, mentor when he was in okay. the 50s making cymbals for Zildjian at the time. Now, did you review these? I did. Um, okay. So these are really kind of earthy. You know, I've always been kind of on a quest for a thin, dark, expressive jazz cymbal that's also dry and can kind of, kind of doesn't wash out when I start playing a little bit faster or more yeah. aggressively. So I want that kind of old K sound that I can use on a bar gig. Right, And these two were the closest that I've, that I, in recent memory, that I've experienced where I could get that without having to use any tape or anything like that.
0: Man, that, that uh, Kirkor, it's unbelievably quiet. Like, yeah. yeah. I searched out like five videos of people playing it, and I had to keep turning up my speakers, but I'm looking <laughs> at their stick height, and I'm like, they're laying into it. It just, yeah. it just stays out of the way,
1: man. And it's that's the washier cool. of the two, actually. Wow. <clears throat> the Sabra is just really dry, but not, not dead. It still has a nice tone. They're both 22s, right? Yeah, they
0: are. It's crazy uh, for them to be 22s and have that little, um, o- what I would, I guess, call overriding, where they just won't shut up.
1: Yeah, you know, exactly. Usually yeah, 22s just keep
0: building and building.
1: I don't know what the magic is. The Sara is, is I think it's unlaid, There maybe it has some like, light scratch lathing. Okay. <clears throat> Very hammered. It's kind of raw finished. The kirkor has kind of more of the spiral lathing, where it's partially yep. raw and partially laid. They actually played really well together. I used the Kerkor on the left side as kind of a crash and a ride. And then the, the Sara I used more as the main ride because it was just drier and had a, more control and articulation. But they were, you know, as close as I could get to that sound that, you know, like when I hear my favorite studio drummers play, the ride symbol that they're using wouldn't translate to a louder live gig. But hmm, I yeah. want that sound. I want right. that Matt Chamberlain ride sound. I want yep. but that as soon as I take something like that out, out onto the gig it just washes out and, and I'm having to tape it up or really tighten up my grip or whatever. These kind of got me that sound right away. I'm sure there's comparable in other brands, but this is the in my recent memory, these were the closest that I could get to that.
0: Yeah, and you and you review more gear than almost anybody in the world. Um, I, I gotta give mm. it up to them. They do have a good website. And uh, yeah. I was very proud of them. It's a, it's a very good website. Um, but yeah, the they both – the other thing I like about them is the, the logos are done tastefully. If you're looking at the symbol, it's not insane. It, it They look extremely professional. But I, I really was blown away by how controlled they were for that size. I mean yeah. – yeah. When I said, oh, man, they're not – I was actually – when I saw it on the website, I was like, oh, I'm bummed. They're not available in a 21 or a 20, which is what I would play. Mm-hmm. 22 is a little big for me because they always wash so much, and, I, and I'm always on the edge of my symbol. I use it so much as a crash. And then I watched all the videos, and it was like, oh, man, that's, like, that's probably more controlled than most 20s I've heard.
1: Yeah, I would think actually the 20 would be washier. Because uh, there's yeah. something about the extra weight and in the, in the size that it might be in this case actually drying it up a little bit more.
0: Yeah. Now, do you know where these are in in price point range?
1: Uh, you know what? I did. We didn't print the prices, but okay. they're. I think they're comparable to any other kind of high end uh, B20 symbol. Let's see <clears throat> if I can find
0: them. Um, but yeah, they they're pretty amazing. And then, do we have audio of both of these?
1: Yeah, we do. I think I start with the Kirkor first. So you'll hear the Washier one first, and then I go to the the Sara.
0: All right. Well, let's check them out. Well, uh, both of those symbols, it looks like you can find them on different retailers. Anyone that's carrying the Istanbul Amendment line, um, you can find them for about 389 which is actually still a really good price for a 22-inch professional ride symbol. That's yeah. that's really affordable. Um, so awesome, man. Awesome. All right. Well, it is time to do something that we did a whole lot of last week, which is <laughs> listener questions.
1: Yeah. So where do we begin? We're just going to grab three of them here. So I've got this one's from Jordan. Um, He's wondering how valuable a traditional music program is to being professionally successful in drumming. He wants to learn more about drumming and music and to find himself practicing often, but school is expensive and I have zero debt right now. For becoming Mm. a studio drummer or touring drummer or whatever or just simply learning more about this craft, do you think attending a music program at a traditional college is worth it in terms of the cost-to-debt ratio?
0: That's a great
1: question. And that's a pretty controversial one.
0: Yeah, Uh, I've gone through that with almost every 17-year-old student I've ever had and their parents.
1: (laughs) What is your your
0: stock response? Well, the meeting where I go, uh, schools for fools doesn't go well. So, (laughs) um, (laughs) C's get degrees. Uh, I wish I I, would have known that when I was in high school. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I think we have great examples of both, right? So, you take your favorite drummer on the planet and it's like, where did Vinny go to college? Or or whoever. Yeah. And then sometimes you find out, oh, they just didn't. They were just they were already playing by the time they were sixteen. Um and then we have the people it's like, oh, he's a Berkeley grad, or he went to Drummers Collective, or or William Patterson, or wherever. So I think obviously both go well. I think it just depends you need to know why you're going to school to me before you spend that kind of money. And there's some reasons to go to school. For some people, it's straight up. You need to get. You need to get in the scene. You need to get in the mix. You're yeah. going to meet the future bass players, the future keyboard players, the future singers of tomorrow. Will be at school with you. When I look at all of the people that that are playing right now, so many of them know each other from school, um, and they're all in the same age group. I bet Chris Dave still has connections from Howard that he's still, absolutely. His career is kind of based on. I'm sure. Totally. So I think there's that. Um, I think if you're going there to try to be the best drummer and try to win, you'll lose every time. But if you're going there for connections to meet people and to form groups that might last for the rest of your life, then I think it's great. the The hardest thing with getting a degree in school is admitting to yourself and to your parents you don't You don't get that money back. It's it, there is no job placement. So. Yeah. You may get that money back, but not the way you think. It's not like, okay, well, as soon as I graduate, I'll start touring, and I'll give that money to my parents, and then I'll do two albums a year, and it's like, no, you won't. Like It doesn't it doesn't work that way. And maybe you will, but it, it's not part of your graduation. Um, so I, I think it just depends on why you're going there. If you're going there to get in the scene and to get in the mix, it's great. I also think there are some people that need a little bit of a drum set reality check, and being in school gets them around other drummers. So if you're from a small town and you don't have you know if, if if Eric Harlan's not coming over to your house to jam, yeah. you might not know what really exists, yeah, and then you sit down with some guys that aren't even like the big dogs in their hometown and you're like, "Oh my gosh, I've got a lot of work to do um so and then the other thing is is who lives in your area because if you have fantastic instructors, Berkeley level instructors that live in your area, you could just take private lessons with them every week and save a lot of money. So yeah. I think, I think it's such an individual thing. There's no right answer. What about you, buddy?
1: It, I mean, at pretty much everything I, I would just be repeating you. I think, <clears throat> I mean, one, one case in point is when I interviewed Dom family, for his cover story, he talked about not going to music school because why go to music school when I'm already taking lessons with Joe Morello? Like that's what I just, what is yeah. the teacher at, at that college going to teach me that Joe Morello isn't. So he, he went to school for business, which I think was a very smart decision. I totally agree. Um, So that would be one option of maybe don't go to music school, maybe minor in music, but then study something that will actually give you a job and give you a placement and prepare you for maybe another career in the music industry. Um, The other thing was uh, my parents said, you can go to any college you want to as long as it's free. And that that gave me the drive when I was in high school to get straight A's. Because wow. I knew I wanted to go somewhere. I wanted to go away from my small town. I knew I had to go somewhere. So they kind of, you know, instilled that from the very beginning that student debt is not a good idea. You will go to college. <laughs> You'll either go to the <laughs> local community college or sure. go to a state school, but we're not going to pay for it. And you're not yeah. going to take out a loan. So you've got to get scholarships. So that I don't know I don't know how old you are, Jordan, but for me when I was in ninth grade I thought that was kind of brutal for them to say that to me but at the same time it was like well all I got to do is get straight A's and I'll be able to go wherever I want. Yeah. So I Yeah, I, did I it. think
0: I think it comes down to the person. I mean, for me taking private lessons with Pete Magadini while going to a community college and taking marketing and business courses, uh, I think that that's paid so many dividends in my life. Like right. I, it's right. it worked out great for me. But then I you know one of my closest friends on the planet JP Bouvet and his buddy Matt Garska they were both at Berkeley together and yeah. the relationships they have are still paying off every day because of who they went to school with so i don't think there's a wrong answer i think it's a right answer for who you are and um and and the other thing i have a lot of students that have come out of music school and just said i don't want to be in that com- i don't want art to be that competitive so it really comes down mm. to the person. You have to be ready, you know, to be in a think tank, um, and if that pushes you, I mean, just imagining J.P. and Matt at Berkeley, it's like that's like just throwing gasoline on the fire for those two, especially <laughs> yeah. Matt Garska. Yeah. That is the most competitive human being I've ever met in my life. The first time I ever hung out with him, we were at a sushi restaurant, and he was like, "Bet me fifty dollars that I can't pick up that coke can with my chopsticks." I'm like, what? <laughs> that was like his opening line. I'm like, "Wait, why, why? Why would I do that?" And he's like, "I can do it." And, and he, sure enough, he took a, a drink out of a coke can, full coke can with chopsticks, and I was like, "You're amazing." <laughs> I don't even know. I don't even know. But he just he needed that competition all the time. So a place yeah. like Berkeley was beautiful for him. So and
1: there's probably been exponentially more people who go there and just get beat up and they go home. Oh, many more. So I, would I, I think have that it's... and
0: and fantastic drummers. I mean, not like they weren't good enough to hang. They they actually just didn't like the environment. Yeah. So it's all about the person. Um, but I, I I will say this: try to find graduates. You know, reach out to them. Most people that went to any music school are pretty proud of where they went. Uh, I know three of my favorite drummers went to. A non—I guess it's not a music school. Is, is William Patterson a music school? It's just a school, right? That has a great music program.
1: Oh, it's a, it's a university, but yeah, that's they, what I mean. They have a pretty notorious music program, right?
0: But I mean, Mark Juliano went there. Uh, Tim Metz went there, who's yeah. a local drummer here, but he's huge—one um, of my favorites. And Josh Dion, and then um,
1: many more. And I mean, yeah. many
0: more. But I'm just saying those three, and they—they they all went at Bill the Stewart same time. Bill
1: Stewart went there. Oh, did he really? And I think uh, Ari Honig might have gone there too.
0: Yeah, I mean, these guys are all still friends. Um, and that's the only way I even know Mark is through Tim, and then oh, right. Tim and Mark both told me, "Hey, you're going to this festival in Spain, and Josh Dion's on it. He's a monster." That was yeah. their only
1: tip. Thank and you. And Mark got his gig with Avishai Cohen because he was at William Patterson. So really? That's, that's the other. I mean, not not solely because of that, but you know, I'm being just thinking how school.
0: I'm just thinking how confused Jordan is right now. He's like, "What the hell, <laughs> guys? I came to you for help. I have no idea what to do with my life."
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, I think the 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 sum it up for me it's the, it's. Don't go into too much debt unless you feel like it's really going to pan out to something that's going to change your life. Uh, There's other ways to get education. You can always, I think, just, just packing your bags and moving to New York City with no connections is not a good idea. I agree. But maybe going to Drummers Collective for a semester and just hanging out with, Ingo and go to all the clubs and getting to know everybody you know it's a few thousand dollars in the hole but that'll be easier to pay back than a four yeah. year degree from columbia or nyu or something and like that and
0: i could handle a, a a few thousand dollars debt whether it be drummers collective <clears throat> or if you're a west coast guy you could go to musicians institute has the same thing I, at least, you know, do you want to go back and spend 40 grand,
1: you know, yeah, yeah, or, or is exactly. it like,
0: okay, that's not for me. And I, I think even Berkeley has a summer program, right?
1: Yeah, they do. Yeah. So, so
0: <laughs> I, maybe that's the, the solution. All right, next.
1: All right. So this one comes from Steve. Um, he's seen articles on how to hit the symbols, what to look for in a symbol, but he's never seen the answer to when do you hit a simple symbol? symbol. Mm. It may sound crazy, but I'd love for you guys to do. And he's talking about actually an article for the magazine, but, uh, when to hit a certain size symbol on certain parts of a song. There Dude, has to be a reason why a professional hits a certain symbol within a song. That's interesting. Yeah.
0: Th- that's a great question. And one of the biggest problems we have at camp is what I call over-crashing. Yes. Um, it's it's people- universal. It's okay. everywhere. Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, my <laughs> it's God. It's even here in New Jersey. It's the hot-button topic for me. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you want to sound like an amateur hit a crash every two and a half bars. I mean, yes,
0: yeah, restate the one. Just lots. keep going, and going. It's a <laughs> Unless yes, you're I, playing
1: uh, in P Funk and he wants it on the downbeat every totally. time.
0: But even that is is actually a musical statement, right? And yeah. it's part of it, and everything is built around it. But I, I'm, I think one of those things is understanding what does a crash cymbal sonically do. It it literally is like an explosion. It's very similar to a high pitched explosion. So I've never understood um, going from a chorus. Back to a verse, and then doing some monster chop and landing on a twenty-two inch crash, so that the whole band can get quieter. That it that doesn't make any sense. But I think the other thing is, you and I grew up. <laughs> you and I grew up in school music, so we grew up in jazz bands and everything, where everyone around us worked their butts off to tongue these notes just perfectly. And if we hit a twenty-two inch cymbal. When they were tonguing like a really short note, we really ruined their hard work. And so yeah. we learned how to articulate ourselves on the instrument based around the other people that were playing and they were practicing. Um, we weren't playing along to albums. I was playing along to my first trumpet, you know, Dominic Dijon, and I was right. like, and Dom practices his butt off. And we used to <laughs> hang out, and I'm like, okay, man, when you go, I need to go. <laughs> but if he goes and I go, Bush, uh, yeah. we got a problem. So um, now I. That is a good question, though, about what to hit. I mean, do you,
1: what do you have on your kit normally? Do you have one crash, two crashes? I usually have a right side and a left side. Okay. And I don't, I don't go for like extreme contrast. I don't have like a 15 on one side and a 20 on the other. It's usually like an 18 and a 20 or a 17 and a 19, similar series. Um, you know i I tend to favor darker, thinner symbols right i've been I've been experimenting with doing the same size, but like a brighter series versus a darker oh wow series. Okay. that also works really well, but um, most of the time when I'm recording tracks for people and I, and this is in more of a pop rock world, I'll try to do a pass with no crashes mm. and then listen back and say, "Where does the song say I have to crash?" Right. so the next time I go through I know that going into that bridge has to have a crash but maybe going into that first chorus doesn't have to have a crash right so I let the vocal and just what's happening with the guitars kind of lead me rather than the you know gut reaction every chorus hit a crash every yeah. bridge go to a you know the bell of the ride or whatever um, so that's a good way to practice that just find some some minus drums tracks and record yourself doesn't have to be high quality but just just do nothing. Play yeah. play the beat all the way through. Do nothing. Listen back and say, all right, where am I really craving something different? Yeah. And I, I yep. started doing that because I heard a interview with the great uh, Grady Tate, great jazz R and B drummer, and he was, I think it was a big band session or something, and and one of the guys in the band was relaying the story about how the first time through the chart, like that he didn't do anything, he didn't set up any figures, and they they were all getting nervous, like, man, is this guy going to can he read? Can he, can he, <laughs> you know, what's yeah, going yeah. on? Yeah. But he was just listening the first time through. He was just listening and he was editing. He was figuring out know, what's on this chart that I have to play. What's on this chart that I don't have to play. Second time through, it was perfect. Wow. So that, awesome, that kind right? of stuck in my mind of, okay, don't just go with your instincts. Just don't go with habits. Right. You know, there's no reason to not just do a pass with nothing or, you know, or minimal, Uh, Rather than going the other way of playing too busy and then editing. And then taking it out. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you go with nothing, then all of a sudden four crashes in the song is quite a bit. Right, Right, exactly. Uh, But I think the other thing that I've had my students do when it's a problem here either at camp or with a private student is we'll just put on a popular song and I'll just have them count the crashes. And, and sometimes we're into the second chorus and there hasn't been a crash yet. And then we mm-hmm. hear one and it really stands out. And I'm like, okay, that's one. We are two minutes deep and that's one crash. You yeah. would have hit the crash 96 times by now. So so I think you just have to listen and realize, wow, I guess there's not as many as I thought. you know. And then the other thing I will say is learn different ways to crash. I learned so much from Ash Soane, um in Ireland watching him crash. And crash became a verb like to crash, but it doesn't mean you actually bash the crash symbol. So yeah. sometimes he crashes on the snare. So it's boom, cat, a flat doom, cat doom, crack. Right. Right. And so he's shutting it down. He's vacuuming the sound out. Um, sometimes he crashes with the tip of the stick on the top of the symbol and it's just a ting and that's it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes he crashes on the bell of the crash. And so there's different ways to crash besides the insane explosion. So yeah. really get into that stuff. Yeah, cool. I think
1: the other, uh, as far as what cymbals to hit, for me, I go with minimal setup, <clears throat> and if I play through the song once and I just I'm, I need something else, that's when I'll, I'll go for another cymbal. Right. Maybe a stacker, sure. or maybe, I mean, there's been a couple songs in the past eight years where I had to have a splash. It just needed right. it. It was just the yep. way that the... The guitar line ended it was maybe a harmonic or something where it was like right. i needed something splashy
0: yeah i just can't do i can't do that with a, a 19 inch crash yeah even the bit and yeah. the bell
1: of it it just didn't it didn't work that's so that's yeah. that's usually my approach is go with the two crash ride hi-hat normal setup and then if all of a sudden i'm hearing a flat ride or a sizzle ride or a china then i'll put it up but right I don't just start with everything and then just start hitting hitting And then things. have to say
0: like okay I'm gonna take out three of the gongs. <laughs> yeah. Right. But that last
1: one that last one was pretty dope. All uh,
0: right. Next question.
1: Alright, one more. This one comes from um <clears throat> I hope I'm pronouncing your name right, Anut. Yeah. Um he's okay. He says, in a professional studio, what is the point of going through the effort of miking the drums perfectly and getting an amazing tone if samples are going to be layered over the sounds anyway? Isn't that time wasted or not?
0: Well, that's a good question. It also depends. I think a lot of people assume that using samples means that you actually took out your original drum tracks. Usually the samples are... Just underneath the original tracks to fatten them up a little bit. It's not. It's not sound replacement. It's sound enhancement. At least yeah. that's been my experience. What about you?
1: Yeah, sometimes it's been full replacement. <clears throat> More often, the kick drum is replaced than, than anything else I've experienced. Um, but <clears throat> some guys I know, uh, Andy Wallace, the famous producer, he uses the sample just to trigger his reverbs because it's oh, such wow. a, it's a clean sound. There's no mess of, of bleed. Yep. So he puts a, a sample on the snare, but doesn't necessarily blend the actual sample in. He's just using that to then trigger his hall reverb or something. Um But the answer to his question for me, I think it's better. It's always better to have the best quality raw recording as you can. Yeah, because then you don't, you won't need to rely on samples as much. I mean, there's some guys that no matter what, every time I give them a, a, a track, it comes back and they've replaced the snare drum, they've replaced the bass drum. <laughs> That's just. That's just the way people, some people operate, and right. but that doesn't mean I'm all of a sudden just going to give him really crummy drum sounds. And yeah. then because he still have the overheads, he still have the rooms, he still have the toms. Um, I, and I always tune my drums to the to the track, so then it's easier for them to put a sample on and tune the sample. They're not kind of like fishing around to find out what pitch my drum is at. Um, they can use they can use tuned white noise. They can use an 808 that's tuned to the song for the bass drum. But my tracks are always as clean and and as you know tuned to the key. So I think it's just a matter of you just want to deliver the best product possible, and then it's out of your hands. I mean, that's everyone. Ash deals with that. Matt Chamberlain deals with that. Probably the only person that doesn't deal with that is Steve Jordan because he produces his own records. Right. (laughs) So I mean, well, the other thing
0: too is we are in. This stuff comes in and out all the time. So, you don't want to get to the point where you're like, Yeah, I just, I never really learned how to mic because they were using samples in the four years that I started recording. And yeah. It's like, Okay, well, that's not cool anymore. So, go mic your kit or send me some great sounding drums. So, great sounding drum tracks will always be a thing. I think the other thing is, we as drummers, I just like to hear it. I mean, I, I, yeah. I, I just, I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. And I think most people and most producers, if given a a great bass drum, hell, they'd like to sample the kick that you just yeah. recorded.
1: That was what else was going to say. I almost every time I go outside of my studio to do a session at the end of the song, they'd have me do single hits of each drum. So right. they just end up sampling my own sound and I'm I'm completely fine with that. That's sure. okay. It's my sound. Yeah. I'm actually okay with them using samples. I'm not going to add that track to my 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 resume if it comes right. back in and they've completely mangled it up and ro- made it a robot but right whatever you need to do to get your song across is fine but I'm not going to just mail it in and give you really wonky drums right just, well like, the
0: other thing is if it, if it really bothers you then you go your own route like you you produce your own songs or you you know you record all your own stuff. I mean, and that's where we're at right now is where the drummer is also the producer. You know, so yeah, exactly. Um, cool. All right, well, let's get to our picks of the week, guys. Please keep sending in your questions. MD Info at moderndrummer.com com is where you can send those. You can also send audio questions, and we will play those as well. All right, buddy. So I want to get to your pick of the week first, just because it's deep, it's incredible, and I. When you sent it to me, I was like, "Oh man, back in the day." And then I looked at it, I was like, "Or 2014?" <laughs> uh, just, just the album cover itself looked like it was from the 70s, right? And because you said this is, you know, because you told me who was on the album, I was like, I just had this thing in my mind, like, "Oh, back in the day." Yeah. And then no. I was like, uh, "That was like two years ago." Exactly. So uh, it's incredible. So, what is your pick of the week?
1: So, my pick of the week is. Uh, it's a record by a guitarist singer named Jim Oblon. I think I'm pronouncing that. It might be Oblon. I'm not sure. It's O B L O N. I'm completely green to him. I know he's he's in Nashville and he's kind of killing it down there, but I'd never heard of him. Um, the album is called Sunset, and it's got the great Jim Keltner on drums. So I found this record. Um, and I think maybe last week I, I told you how I had my guitarist buddy in Philly. He just contacted me out of the blue, and he sent yep. me sent me a track that had Jim Keltner on it. Um, so I'm kind of researching and preparing to hopefully do a duo record with this guy in Philly. Oh, awesome! But it's not going to be it's not going to be drums. It's going to be Jim Keltner style colors and textures okay. and, and painting. Very picture. cool. So it's so foreign to me that I'm like I've got to I've got to get my head on straight in order to even begin to approach this music because I haven't I've been playing backbeat stuff for for so long now. Sure. So I just started, I went into Spotify and I just searched for Jim Keltner and this is the one record that popped up. It's no the only way. one. It's the only one that pops up as like a full record. It's it's uh, Jim Oblon, wow. Larry Golding's on organ and Jim Keltner on drums. Uh, and the track Lucille is the one that I thought was like, that's it. This is the best Jim Keltner track I've ever heard in my life. Uh, the it, tones it's just are so fat. It's unreal, man. I remember, um, uh, I, I feel like I'm always saying Matt Chamberlain, but I remember him, he did a, a session with, with Jim. I think it was a Brad Meldow record. Okay. So he, he posted a picture of Keltner's drums and, talk, and something about how, you know, when I sat down and played Jim's drums, they sounded like one thing. When Jim sat down with the drums, they sounded an octave lower. And wow. So when you listen to this track, Lucille, it, it sounds to me like the drums have been detuned. They're so, so fat. Right, and yeah, deep. of course. But it's just his touch. He just has a uh-huh. ridiculous sound. And like you said, it was recorded two years ago. And Jim Keltner's been making records since the early 70s, I would assume. Man, and he's so awesome. fresh, so current. Yeah. I mean, his, his vocabulary is so unique. He's always painting the picture in just the perfect little way not super repetitive, but always, always in there. Right. And I think he kind of reaffirms my, you know, my eight year obsession with time to where his time is just so good. He can play anything like uh, there's, there's videos of him with Larry Goldings and another guitarist, like a live, uh, I think it was at the blue whale in, in LA. Okay. Where he's just picking up whatever's in his stick bag and just hitting stuff. And, it just always – and one time he drops a, a mallet and it doesn't matter. He just moves on to the next implement. But it's always in like perfect time and his, and yeah. his dynamics are so musical. It doesn't matter.
0: No, he's, he's unreal, man. And uh, is he still a DW artist, you know? Yeah, he is. I think so.
1: Yeah, long-time DW artist.
0: I, even even just watching him back in um, – what was uh, – Dave Grohl is it Sound City? Oh, yeah, yeah. Because he's he's in there just doing some of the tracking with yep. shakers and drums, yep. and it's just like what the hell? Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, really, everything we love about Matt Chamberlain can the exact same can be said for Jim Keltner. We can't yeah. tell what's percussion, we can't tell what's drums. He almost it's never rich. just
1: plays kit. He always has. Yeah. I mean, he's he was the first I remember of guys taping maracas to drumsticks, and the guy was experimenting with electronics like in the early days of wow. you know, D drum and. I mean, he and he, he has a kit that um, that he used. I think it was with Bill Frizzell's group, where all the drums had snare mechanisms on them. So his rack tom had a snare mechanism on his floor tom. Wow. Had a, it was just just so creative. I mean, think this is a guy who used to hang out with with John Lennon and and <laughs> George Harrison, and he could just Jeez. be you know phoning it in. He could just be playing the same stuff he's been playing forever. But sure, every record he makes is different. But like when my friend sent me that other track, the first thing I texted back was like, that can only be Jim Keltner. There's no other drummer on earth that would have treated that song like that. Right. And I that's think so that's, cool, that's man. That's pretty magical. So yeah, that's the record awesome. is Sunset, Jim Oblon, or Oblon. Hopefully I'll figure it out by next week. <laughs> the track Lucille would be the one to start with. It's so groovy, um, and he's my new favorite drummer. That's
0: awesome. Yeah. Jim Kellner's back in the mix. That's so awesome, man. That's really cool. Well, my uh, pick of the week this time is slightly obscure. So there's a, um, another podcasting friend that has a podcast called The Solopreneur Hour. He was here at camp, and he hipped me to this website called kit.com, just K-I-T.com. And he was telling me, he's like, dude, you need to make a kit. And I was like, I don't even know what the hell you're talking about. Well, what it is, it's a place where people can make kits of things to buy that I don't even know how to say it. It's, it's almost like if people are asking you, hey, what kind of camera do you use? What kind of lens do you use? You make a kit of the lens, the camera body, uh, the software you use, And it's just one place for people that are trying to find something to go. So really, it's just collecting everything from whether it be Amazon or Musician's Friend. doesn't matter. Um, So I have a kit there. And I just want to be very forthright. I have chosen to not use any affiliate codes, meaning if you go to this website and buy something from my kit, I don't get any money from it whatsoever. It's just a place where it helps you narrow down so you don't have to do all the searching. So right now I just made my practice kit. So my practice kit, if you go to kit.com and just search for Mike Johnston, you'll see my practice kit it has my sticks, the pro uh, blue lightning pad, which people sometimes have a hard time finding mm. has the uh, hydro flask that I have my green tea in <laughs> and it has the volcano candle that I use when I practice. Nice. So like I said, it's you don't have to buy all of it. You can just buy one of those things or whatever. It's just a place to, to organize the things that I'm using. So when people – it's more like a help for me. When people say, hey, where do you get those volcano candles? I can just send them a link to my kit and then you could just get it in there. Mm. Um, but so I want to make like my recording gear. It's like, well, I use this interface. I use this overhead uh, and – I'm using these plugins, and hmm. it's just a place to organize the things that you're using. So people that are willing or want to buy it can find it. Uh, so it's just Kit.com. If you go there right now, you'll you'll see like right on their homepage, you'll see uh, Tim Ferriss has a kit, and it's like okay, well these are the tools that industry, you know, titans use. And then there's great. Uh, cinematographers and it's like, oh okay, he's using this camera body with this lens and this lighting rig. And so like I said, it's just a way to organize things. So very cool. Um I, I could definitely see you know Modern Drummer using it as well as just like look, instead of searching for 10 different places on Google, we'll just organize it for you. Um, yeah. dig it. And uh yeah. So is it free there to you set go. up? It is, yeah. Yeah. Oh. It's um it's just I think it's just a way for people that have a, a big social media following And they're just sick of saying, well, I got my sticks here. I do this here. I got (laughs) that there. It's like, you know. So, what happens is when you're setting up your kit, there's just a search bar. You type in any product that you want to add to your kit, it finds the best price for it and adds it to your kit so people can easily find it. That's it. Awesome. Super cool. So, yeah. So, we'll put a link to uh, my practice kit. And like I said, I, I have no affiliate code, so I'm not. I don't get like a percentage. And if I ever decide to do that, I will just announce here on this podcast, if I ever decide to do affiliate codes, I will let Mike Dawson choose the charity that my profits go to. Because so, <laughs> honestly, if I notice that I sold like 4,000 kits, it's like, okay, well, yeah. let's, put, let's put a little bit of that to, you know, right, to charity. Right. So, All right, everybody. We'll have an amazing week. Get your practice in. Keep us updated on your practice. Send us your questions to mdinfo at And buddy, have a great week. Enjoy the snow. Oh, no. uh, Let's not wish that yet. Okay. (laughs) Just cold. Uh, Just bitter cold. All right. Just enjoy the bitter cold. and, uh, And I will talk to you next week. All right. See you. Later, bud.